We're starting a new series this morning. It's called Coming and Going or Come and Go. And it's about a rhythm of discipleship. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home and to have faith from being an infant. But I made a decision to give my heart to Jesus when I was 10 after reading Treasures of the Snow by Patricia Sinjin with my dad. We didn't talk about it much, but he made sure that I had age-appropriate Bible study materials to use as I grew up. I had very few Christian friends at school or at church until I got to university, but there I almost lost my faith at 20. Were it not for Mike and Steffi, I wouldn't be here. At various points from the age of 14, I felt called to full-time ministry in the church. I was ordained deacon at 25, priest at 31, after a long delay and a hard fight due to some unwise choices. It's been a bumpy ride, some of it my fault, some of it unavoidable. I've loved, I've been hurt, I've hurt others, I've made and lost some wonderful friends and tried to serve God faithfully, whatever I've been doing. When was I called to be a disciple? Was it sitting in the lounge with dad, aged 10? Was it age 14 when I felt the call to full-time ministry? Was it when I came back to faith at university? Was it when I chose the church over a lucrative IT career? Sometimes I regret that decision. (laughs) Or is it every morning... No. (laughs) Or is it every morning when I managed to decide to begin the day in prayer rather than work? Of course, most of you probably know me well enough by now to know the answer to all those questions is yes. The decision to follow Jesus is one that we as God's children and Jesus' disciples need to make every single day. The decision to follow Jesus, the decision to live as his disciples is one that affects every single other decision we might make. From the clothes we wear, to the place we live, to the food we eat, to the company we keep, to the words we speak. So whether you first became a Christian in a moment of decision as an adult, or you grew up in a Christian household, or you feel far away, slipping, or on the way back, what matters is that we learn to respond to Jesus' call. And that response is not a one-off, but a daily decision, a daily rhythm of discipleship. Every day we come to Jesus and every day we go with Jesus. We come to Jesus to rest, to listen, to learn, to be inspired. We go with Jesus in confidence, in faith, in obedience. So this term we will be alternating each week. I will be looking at a passage where Jesus says, come And when Jesus says go, and I pray that through this term, we might all learn and grow in that rhythm of discipleship. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come Follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, 
preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And the second reading, chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for Matthew and for the way that he faithfully recorded these events in Jesus' life. And I pray that you would speak to us now by these words and by my words and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder who in this room has lived the furthest north. I'm going to start us off with Teesside because I've lived in Teesside. Any advance on Teesside? Yes? Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Any, oh, yes? Oh, wow, North I don't even know where that is. That's so far away. Any advance on whatever Cathy just said? <laughs> Anyone from Inverness? Any, anywhere north of that? Further north. It's further north than Inverness. Wow. John O'Groats, anyone? That is virtually John. It is virtually John O'Groats. Well, there we go. Anyone further north in the world <laughs> to get your lines of latitude? If you have one of the church Bibles, at the very front of it, you'll find some, some little maps. And uh, the one on the bottom left says Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, it's very interesting because you think, well, that's going to be a map of Israel, isn't it? I mean, if you actually look at the words, where Israel is, you've actually got Israel at the top and Judah in the bottom. And that's because centuries before Jesus, the kingdom of Israel under David and Solomon was then split in two. And there was a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was called Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah was relatively faithful to God. They had Jerusalem within their boundaries, which was the focus of of worship for God in the Old Testament. But the northern kingdom of Israel went off track pretty quickly. They abandoned God to worship idols. In fact, the first king of Israel made them some idols to worship. And they absorbed beliefs and practices from the surrounding nations and created a kind of hybrid pagan Jewish religion. On the right-hand side, next to that, where it says Palestine in the time of Jesus, the north is no longer called Israel, it's called Samaria and Galilee. Now, the quote from Isaiah shortly before the first of those two readings, which, uh, again, if you flick back to Matthew 4, it summarizes how the Jews in the south felt about their cousins in the north, now known as Samaritans. This is verse 15. Land of Zebulun. And land of Naphtali, that's the north, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, Gentiles being not Jews, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We might have expected God's son to start his mission at the place where God's presence among his people was focused, in the temple in Jerusalem. 
to which all faithful Jews had to travel regularly to worship. But Jesus, it says just after that, Jesus lived in Capernaum, verse 13. He left Nazareth and he went and lived in Capernaum, right by Lake Galilee in the far north, in that place of darkness and death, a place without God, according to Isaiah. I find that quite encouraging. Because then, as now, Jesus comes to those who live in darkness. He is the light that has dawned upon them, that has dawned upon us. We also might have expected God's Son to call the religious leaders and experts to be his first in his new community. But actually, in our reading, he saw two brothers who were fishermen. Now, they had to be pretty tough fishermen in Lake Galilee because it has appalling weather. We had some pretty appalling weather last week down in Somerset. But the weather in Galilee is even worse. Hence why Jesus had to calm the storms so many times. But it was also teeming with fish. So they probably made a decent living, these fishermen. It wasn't hard work fishing in Lake Galilee. James and John certainly made a decent living because we know from Mark's gospel that their family had hired men that worked for them. That's Mark 1 verse 20. They weren't poor. They weren't fabulously wealthy. They were sort of somewhere in the middle. They were ordinary, hard-working folk. And like the lake was teeming with fish, it could support lots of communities and villages and people. So the land was teeming with people. Lots of people who needed the light, who needed Jesus. Now, sometimes when I ask to pop around and see people, uh, or even sometimes when I phone them, they get suspicious. (laughs) I can hear it in the voice. Why does the vicar want to speak to me? Sometimes it even borders on panic, outright panic. Now, I'll admit, sometimes I do ring people because I want something from you. In which case, I'll tell you up front, I promise, that that's why I've called after our pleasantries and all that. But most of the time, my purpose is simply to, I want to get to know you better. I promise. Jesus was really up front with Peter, James, John, and Andrew as well. He told them exactly what he wanted from them and exactly what he promised to them. Verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Come. This isn't an invitation. We sort of domesticate Jesus sometimes. This is a command. It's an order. Come. He did not try to persuade them to be part of whatever crazy harebrained adventure he was going on. It wasn't a polite request. It was an unconditional and unexplained demand. Only Jesus can lead like this. Only Jesus can issue such a command. But he still issues it to us today. Come. Come, follow me. Now, Jesus did not invent the idea of disciples. They were part of Jewish culture back in the first century. A rabbi would gather a small group of men, sorry ladies, who would listen to him and they would learn from his teaching. The word disciple actually means learner. It doesn't mean follower, it means learner. So disciples of Jesus listen, they learn, 
and they obey. They put into practice all that Jesus teaches and follow his example. Those original disciples, they did physically gather around Jesus and they followed him wherever he went for three years or more. And they learned as they went. We can't do that in the same way that they did, but we can still learn and be disciples of Jesus. We have very helpfully recorded for us all sorts of things that Jesus did and said. But more than that, the things that help us understand who Jesus was, why he came, why he had to do what he did, who we are. There's a lot of reality check in the Bible about the reality of what it is to be human. What it means to live as God's people, as foreigners in a, in a hostile world. We need to read our Bibles in a humble and prayerful way. Letting God teach us, letting God speak to us by his spirit through these words. The Bible talks about itself as, uh, as renewing us, washing us, cleansing us, teaching us, changing us, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we read it, all of it, not just the, the nice little bits that we like. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't just mean reading stuff, though. It means living it out. Living out God's way of life. The disciples weren't just there to sit at the feet and listen. Oh, good point, teacher. Oh, that's a, I really like that mnemonic. That's really clever. They had to do it as well. That's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends them out. He basically says to them, do for the world what I've just done to you. I've made you disciples. Now it's your turn. You need to now go and make disciples of all nations. It means living out God's way of life, not living as we want to, but living as God wants us to. Even when it feels impossible, even when we don't want to. Being a disciple of Jesus, it means sharing your heart and listening to God's heart in prayer. That's what prayer is. Part of prayer is, is asking God for stuff, but actually a lot of prayer is listening. Through the words of scripture, as we sit in silence, as we reflect on creation, listening to what God might be saying to us. I wonder if we do all this. Or if we hope that by coming to church, some of that stuff might seep in without us having to put that much effort in. I have a lot of books on my bookshelf. And I haven't read most of them all the way through. I've read bits of pretty much all of them. But uh, I, yeah, there's a lot of them. I've not read quite a lot of them. But somehow I hope that their insights will seep into my brain as I sit in there writing sermons. That's not what being a disciple is like. Do we hope that one day we'll find a way to spend time with God without having to sacrifice all those other things we do, like a bit of extra sleep in the morning, or binge-watching TV programs, or doom-scrolling the news or social media, or filling our mind's eye with things we shouldn't? Do we hope that one day we'll wake up and it will be easy? Probably. <laughs> but I'm afraid that's not going to happen. And the truth is that Christians who drift drift only in one direction, and it isn't towards Jesus. It is away from Jesus. I struggle to make that time every day to pray and to read my Bible. You might not believe me, but I do. And I always have, whether I've been unemployed, working in a normal job, growing up going to school, and lots of stuff in between. I've always struggled. It's not an excuse. It's just reality. It's normal. But that doesn't mean we have a reason to stop trying. Life pulls us away from Jesus, so we need to be deliberate about keeping our focus on him. 
this is something that you need help with, please ask someone. It doesn't have to be me. It could be someone you know and trust, a Christian friend, brother, sister, whatever you want to call them. We don't follow Jesus alone, but together. Next, Jesus gives them the purpose. Come, follow me, verse 19, and I will send you out to fish for people. It's a slightly naughty bit of translation there because the word is actually make. So the the old version of that where Jesus says, come and I will make you fishers of men, it's not gender inclusive, but it's more accurate as a translation of what Jesus actually says. Because central to Jesus' call and his command is that he, he makes his disciples into something new, something that we weren't before and something that we couldn't be without him. We do not stay as we are if we want to be disciples of Jesus. God made me like this is not a valid excuse. He's not done with us when we're born. He keeps working within us as his children. He calls us to a lifetime of sacrifice, of being made and remade, transformed and renewed, to become the people that he's making us and calling us to be. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of people. That said, I'm not a fisherman. I I actually don't think I've ever been fishing. I was trying to remember this morning. I'm pretty sure I've never been fishing. But I'm pretty sure that fishermen can't work from home. (laughs) I, I don't know if I've misunderstood something, but I'm pretty sure they can't. They have to go where there are some fish to do the fishing. So actually, the way this is translated isn't that inaccurate anyway. Jesus both makes us into fishers of people and sends us out to fish for people in verse 19. And of course, that's exactly what he does at the end of Matthew as well. And in our new church vision and mission document, the summary that we've got is making, growing, sending disciples of Jesus. In reality, there is no neat division between those three things. A lot of them, they sort of happen all together a lot of the time. But the sending is important, like the fisherman metaphor, because it reminds us that to obey Jesus means to go, to be sent. You can't fish at home. I suppose unless you're very rich and you've got a trout pond. In the same way that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, so we are sent into the world by Jesus. It's exactly the same movement. In the same way that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, so we are sent into the world by Jesus. Jesus said that himself. As the Father sends me, so I send you. So our call is to come to Jesus to listen to him, to learn, to be remade and renewed, so we can go with Jesus, sent into all the world. Why? Because people are lost. They are trapped and enslaved by sin and desire, brought low by pain and darkness and death. That's the reality of the prophecy from Isaiah. On those people living in darkness... A light has dawned, the light of Jesus. That includes us. The coming of light is great news, unless you want to hide in the darkness. 
I um, once was in a, a country where there are lots of cockroaches. You may have gathered from me that I, I drink quite a lot of water. And uh, I got up in the middle of the night, I was 11, to get myself a glass of water. And so I walked into the kitchen, swished the lights on, and the floor started moving <laughs> because all of the cockroaches were covering the kitchen floor and they all just went <laughs> clattering away. It was one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me. It was disgusting. Those cockroaches did not like the light. To them, the light was not good news. Friends, don't be a cockroach. (laughs) Coming to Jesus and spending time with him every day is challenging. But actually, that's the easy part. Going out with Jesus into the world is much, much harder. Because the dark fights back. Even though Jesus' disciples live in the light, the darkness still creeps in. Even though Jesus has defeated sin once and for all on the cross, still it has power to damage and deceive and distract and distort. Being a disciple of Jesus is hard, particularly when we go with him out into the world. But friends, it is worth it. Because the light of Jesus can never be put out. The life of Jesus can never be defeated. And the love of Jesus is stronger than anything else in all creation. The cost is great, but the reward is greater. When I proposed to Jess, we were standing on the driveway of her student house. She thought she was on her way to lectures clutching a pile of notes and textbooks. I popped in to surprise her for lunch. I got out the ring, though, went down on one knee and asked her to marry me. She said yes immediately, of course. (laughs) Surprise. Um, She dropped all her papers and textbooks on the drive, and she flung herself at me and almost knocked me over backwards causing the builders who were on their lunch break on the drive next door to, to laugh and guffaw rather, rather a lot. <laughs> Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that those first disciples responded to Jesus in a similar way to that. At once, verse 20, they left their nets and followed him, verse 21, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, from John's Gospel, we know that this wasn't actually the first time that these four guys had met Jesus. But then they simply spent time with him. Now, he was calling them to leave everything behind. To go with him into an uncertain and unknown future. And they did. Immediately. Twice. At once. Immediately. They left it all. Their nets. Their boats. Their homes their livelihoods, their families, they left it all for Jesus. Peter wasn't kidding when he said to Jesus, this is in Mark 10, we left everything to follow you, slightly accusingly. He wasn't kidding though, they they genuinely did. They might not have been wealthy, but it cost them everything to follow Jesus. And for most of them, it ended up costing their lives as well. They held nothing back. I wonder how I might have responded to Jesus calling me like that. 
I say I don't do fishing, but I do sit in my study. Perhaps in my study. Knock, knock, knock. Not now, Jesus. I'm busy. I might roll my eyes. I'm in the middle of something important. Maybe I would tell him, wait until I finish this. Wait until that happens. Wait until I have more time. Maybe when I'm retired, although apparently retired people have less time. (laughs) See what I mean? There is no then. (laughs) There's only now. We're so good at excuses, but they followed him immediately. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were busy. If you look in verse 18, Peter and Andrew were actually in their boat on the lake fishing. They were casting a net in their lake. James and John, they were in a boat as well, preparing their nets. They weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs looking for something better to do. They were hard at work, doing good stuff, providing for their family. And yet they left it all and followed Jesus. They lost so much. Imagine how their mum felt when dad came home. Where are James and John? It cost them a lot. But they gained more than they could ask or imagine. They gained new friends, new family. They learned new things. They became new and renewed people. They changed almost beyond recognition. One of the wonderful things about the Gospels is to see the way that Peter changes through them into Acts. They knew hardship and they knew persecution. And even though they were killed for their faith, they knew they grasped hold of a life that is stronger even than death. And because they faithfully bore witness to the risen Jesus, we are here today. There is an unbroken line of faith from them to you. And there are countless people in between. Many, many faithful disciples who obeyed Jesus' call not only to come, but also to go and to bear witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that's amazing. And I want to be part of that. And I want you to be part of that. So that in 2,000 years, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, some random chap is standing here, or perhaps in a different building, I don't know if this one will last 2,000 years, saying the same thing. And that we were part of that. Friends, Jesus didn't promise an easy life to those four men. He didn't say anything about that. He just said, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. He doesn't promise it to us either. But he does promise to remake us into the women and men God is calling us to be. He promises to teach us, to change us, to renew us, to use us and to mold us so we can become and grow as disciples of Jesus, as children of God. To live that life, we need Jesus. We need his Holy Spirit. And we need that daily rhythm of coming to Jesus and going with Jesus. It's not like a workplace induction. Do it once and then off you go. It's like breathing. You know how to breathe, don't you? Jesus' disciples constantly come in, come to him, and go with him every day, all day. Coming to him and going with him, like breathing. 
in the power of the Spirit. So friends, let us learn how to breathe. Let us learn that rhythm of discipleship. Amen.